Hello and welcome to the titillating 10th issue of What's Up? Oh, <laughs> uh, just an almost automatic word that uh, sounds what? like what it is, you know? What are you talking about? Is it uh, onomatopoeia? It sounds like what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not really exactly, but go on. Titillating? So, yeah. Is it, is it in itself a titillating word you don't find? What? I just find it's a word that really, like, tickles the senses. <laughs> this guy's a dang-ass freak. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to the triumphant 10th edition. <laughs> of got the runs the comics podcast that'll make your bod fast because you won't be hungry anymore because you will have been nourished by our information and laughs is that a keeper (laughs) (laughs) you look dismayed i I feel dismayed yeah i i think we'll keep workshopping it okay any episode now will land on the keeper I was actually, I was listening to an old episode while I was editing it, and we cl- you closed by saying to be continued, which I thought was a good idea, and I think we should <laughs> bring that back. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is the start of a triumphant new miniseries, and we are covering, we've moved, we've, we've left Scott in the clouds, as we I like to say. comics now. <laughs> yeah. Now that we understand and make comics... <laughs> still working on reinventing them we can move on to a not not i wouldn't say a traditional comics creator but a more traditional comics creator to be certain one who has done significantly more work within the sort of more mainstream comics world as well as obviously created and scribed several of his own comics this is brian k vaughn this is a big one and by big one, I mean the size of the miniseries. <laughs> so, what what are your what are your general thoughts on Brian Kevin? I mean, I we've talked about this in the last episode. I've read some of White Last Man. I've read Runaways. Other than that, not super familiar. Have you seen Lost? <laughs> I actually haven't seen Lost. Uh, Me and I, in in doing some background reading, realized the extent to which I was wrong about him being a TV guy. Uh, the early 2000s are not uh, not the period of time I have the greatest handle on, um, so it was very enlightening looking at the release dates of his comics and then being like, wait, Lost was running in 2009? I feel like I should have remembered that, but anyways, not a Lost guy. I love Brian K. Vaughn. Did you ever get Under That Dome? <laughs> I have read Under the Dome and enjoyed it. I have not watched the show, mostly because I barely watch TV, but I would be interested Whoa. to do so, I suppose. This guy doesn't watch TV. <laughs> you famously don't watch I, TV. I, I know. I'm, the, I'm the person who actually does say that. But hey, I've watched one episode of television, maybe one and a half episodes of television today. Oh, there you go. Now, have you heard about this superstore? <laughs> Anyways, love Brian K. Vaughn. Not quite my on-ramp into comics, but I believe that after Watchmen... Why the Last Man might have been the first comic that I own. I have, I think I've read almost everything he's done. Enjoyed almost all of it tremendously. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that he's one of the most important creators of the 21st century. Wow. Yeah, great, great writer. I love most of what he does. Cool. I, I did not, I mean, I obviously I knew he was like very well respected. I kind of lump him in with like, I feel like there's sort of like a mid-2000s-ish, like, sort of core group of comics creators that I'm sort of familiar with. 
that he would be included in, um, but I did not know that you held him in such high esteem, so this should be very interesting. So the first thing that we will be covering, it's not the first comics work he ever did, but it is the first, uh, I think, ongoing. It's the first ongoing, yeah. Yeah. Um, is Swamp Thing, Volume 3, written by BKV himself, Bind Corchurville. <laughs> is that good? No. Uh, art by Roger Peterson, Joe Rubenstein, Rick Magyar, Cliff Chang, Rodney Ramos, Mark Lipka, Steve Lieber, which I have miswritten here, Paul Pope, and Guy Davis. And who can forget Alex Sinclair doing the colors, of course. Sure. Who um, does the cover art for this? Because the covers are very interesting and very painterly. So I was looking into this because I recognized some of the art and not others, but they change it every three issues for pretty much the entire series. So yes, this is cover dated May 2000. It's under the Vertigo imprint. So how long has Vertigo been around at this point? Like 10 years? Not even? No, uh, probably a little over 10 years. I actually should have uh, should have looked into this a little bit more closely, but Swamp Thing is like a um, cornerstone Vertigo title in a weird way because it's not like obviously this Swamp Thing is, but it wasn't originally a Vertigo title. It debuted in the Bronze Age created by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. I believe they're both credited in every issue of uh, Swamp Thing as the two creators. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had a couple of other creators work on it, but famously revitalized by Alan Moore uh, in starting in 1983, I want to say. Um, very little known at that time. But anyways, that that book is kind of credited as kicking off the Vertigo sort of era at DC, not because Swamp Thing was a Vertigo book or because Alan Moore ever wrote for Vertigo, which I don't believe he did. But because the the sort of like horror fantasy tone of the book was so influential on the Vertigo books that followed, and because the series editor uh, for Swamp Thing at the time was Karen Berger, who would become the line editor for Vertigo um, for for pretty much its entire existence, uh, and is a very celebrated figure for her her contributions there. So. I'm trying to. I don't think I know what the first Vertigo book is, um, but I. <laughs> we can talk about this a little bit later. I did reread all of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing before getting <laughs> <Okay. laughs> into these issues this week, and none of them are in the Vertigo imprint. Yeah, so I have a little bit of information here. Uh, March 1993 was the debut of the Vertigo imprint, so it's been around not quite 10 years at this point. Um, interestingly, which <laughs> feels like we should do more research for this podcast, but <laughs> so th- there is a very uh, clear Swamp Thing connection here because so Vertigo, like you said, the sort of Vertigo era before it was called Vertigo was the mature readers line. And that started because DC stopped submitting the saga of Swamp Thing to the Comics Code Authority for yes. approval. And that's sort of when the like mature readers line became what it is and which eventually became vertigo and is now why did they get rid of vertigo that's such a good name and now it's dc black label yeah so technically technically dc black label is distinct because they were both around for a little while but yeah it it does suck uh the basically the long and the short of it is that like vertigo really made its name in the 90s with like sandman and lucifer and hellblazer and lots of very influential and good and seminal titles that um you know the next generation coming up read and we're like this is awesome like this is the kind of comics i want to make 
Um, but you know, it's not always easy to do (laughs) the things that influenced you as well as, um, as well as the people who influenced you did them. So not to say that there's not any good vertigo books that came out of that. Like we're going to, we're going to be talking about a good vertigo book uh, in a couple of weeks with why the last man, there are lots of good vertigo books that followed, but I think they just had a hard time recapturing the magic of it. Uh, especially like as the two thousands wore on, like, I think Preacher probably overlaps into the early 2000s and then Why the Last Man, obviously, as well. Um, but as the, the like kind of late 2000s went on, sales just started going down. It felt like maybe the, the creative spark wasn't quite there as much. Um, so, yeah, basically for as long as I've been reading comics, Vertigo has kind of like swung in and out of being a thing. They did try to revive it one last time. They like got a new logo for it and and made a new push with the, um, they, so Neil Gaiman basically like greenlit a whole line of Sandman universe comics that used characters and ideas. And I don't think he was writing any of them, but he was sort of like curating the line and they used that to kind of give a last push to the Vertigo branding. And lots of those books are good. And I think a few of them are still going, but basically they, they kind of gave it the, the last good college try and it didn't really pan out. So they pivoted over to Black Label, which they had been sort of developing as a like mature readers slash like adult prestige format. And and DC Black Label, it seems, is mostly about making Batman scary. <laughs> um, DC Black Label shot to infamy when in Batman Damned by Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo, the outline of Batman's penis was visible <laughs> on a page oh, of the first printing, honey. which caused a bizarre speculation boom. <laughs> we now know that Batman is circumcised. It was edited out of future <laughs> future printings, but that was basically the first big splash of, uh, of Black Label. <laughs> they have <laughs> they they folded a lot of like classic titles into Black Label now too. Like when they put out reprints now of like New Frontier or Kingdom Come or like you know standalone like Elseworld stories like that that are sort of evergreen. They now put those out as Black Label books, and then they've had they've had some success too with like they did a like Harley Quinn origin story. Jeff Lemire did uh, a question story that I really want to read. Looks good, but. Yeah, it it's kind of is filling the hole that Vertigo left to an extent, but it's it's more focused on sort of like DC universe characters in sort of mature Elseworld settings. Specifically Batman, it would seem. Batman's I mean, Batman's the moneymaker. Some of these read like parody titles, i.e. Joker, Killer Smile. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Joker and Harley stuff. Which was followed by Batman. The Smile Killer. <laughs> so yes, yes, the cover artist for the first three issues and <laughs> and the uh, Secret File special is Phil Hale, uh, an artist who barely worked in comics, uh, has twenty eight issues to his credit, I believe, all cover art. Which, speaking of which, so Roger Peterson, who penciled the majority of the issues that we're going to be talking about today, also barely worked in comics, less credits than Phil Hale. 24 total uh, total credits, mostly credited for Swamp Thing, and then it looks like did maybe a Predator story in Dark Horse Extra, one Aliens story, one little Nemo story, and one sure. Pandora story. You got it. If you're if you're like an independent comics creator, at some point you have to write or draw like 
a weird European children's <laughs> adaptation. Yeah, like, so this is really his only his only serialized uh, work, pretty much the only the only one of particular note. I would say, how do you find him as an artist in these issues? Um, first, I just want to get this joke out. Brian K. Vaughn wrote the Little Prince Annual Number One. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, I mean, yes, it's, it's a very particular style of art. I wouldn't say I love it. It's definitely interesting. Like, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a bridge between sort of more stylized art, I would say. And then like more typical comics art. Like when I think of Vertigo, I think of the art styles being not particularly comics-esque and more leaning towards like impressionistic evocative like like the covers which are very like they look like they're watercolors almost Mm -hmm. and are very painterly and that's sort of the aesthetic i associate with vertigo maybe because of sandman there's definitely some gnarly stuff in this book certainly yeah uh he's i i don't i don't consider him a standout i would say serviceable is maybe the the word that comes to mind no uh no shade intended to you uh roger peterson i know you're listening you know who the, the peterson i care about is stewie oh boy i'm a chris man as you know uh <laughs> <laughs> as i know as you personally that threat know. <laughs> so before we get into the issues themselves which we will do uh probably in about half an hour <laughs> yeah you can just just move forward that's the first ad break I first wanted to talk about uh, the origins of Brian K. Vaughn's career, which was not uh, in television, as I previously said. He was a comics writer, first and foremost. His avenue in, he was attending film school at NYU. He participated in what seems to have been a combination, like, class-slash-writer's-development like project that was run at NYU by Marvel editors intended to be like a new talent development. Like an incubator? Yeah. Would you like to guess what the name of that program was? So it's going to be Marvel. It's it's going to be something like New X-Men, but it's but it's young. <laughs> young Marvel X-New. Is that right? The correct answer is the Stanhattan Project. Oh, no! <laughs> called the Stanhattan Project. <laughs> so when you, when we, before we started recording, and you said, did you know, dot, 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 wait, I'll save <laughs> for the podcast. Um, I don't remember what that was about, but no, I, when I asked you if you had done any reading, that was what I was trying to suss yes, out. Yes, <laughs> that was the, that was the big reveal you yes. quote had planned. <laughs> When I read it, I burst out laughing and uh, and told my wife that I couldn't wait to reveal it to you. <laughs> Anyways, it sounds like an interesting program. Uh, I, I watched Joe Kelly, uh, who was another comics writer and graduate of the program, talk about it. And he said basically they like did the, the writing process in reverse. So like the first thing they did was get handed like sample pages um, with no dialogue. And they were like, all right, it's dialogue week. Write dialogue for these pages do that and, and workshop it together and then would go back to be like all right now like plot uh and then basically like worked backwards through the whole process until they were working on like all right put together a pitch and like a series bible for something that you would write and it seems to it seems like uh 
it was successful, somewhat successful at least, as a talent incubator. I mean, they got uh, Joe Kelly and Brian K. Bonnet, at least two or two pretty pretty recognizable creators. Several, or it seems like some of the alumni basically went on the editors' like kind of call lists for when they needed fill-ins. So, like, Brian K. Vaughn's first published comic was an issue of Cable that he just wrote the dialogue for. Like, it had already been plotted and the art was done. But then, like, you know, there was something came up and he had to come in and just do the dialogue. Joe Kelly told a similar story in the interview that I was watching about getting called in to do dialogue for a book that had already been plotted. And then basically allowed allowed people to go from there to start working on regular series after that. Because this is, I think, Swamp Thing number one is like his third published comic or maybe fourth. Yeah. So, I yeah, I saw I saw the cable. I saw one issue of Wolverine. I saw one other like X Men or one or two other X Men tie in books, and those are all cover dated like nineteen ninety seven or something. And then in this, you this is cover dated May two thousand for the first issue of Swamp Thing. Yeah. So I guess he was just chilling and then <laughs> pitching to DC or something. Grad I don't really life. know how it works. Brad Life. Brad Life, I said. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> who's Brad Life? <laughs> um, yeah, I so maybe not surprising, I couldn't really find any interviews where he talked about how he got this job. People mostly got more <laughs> interested in interviewing him after he became a, a smash hit creator of other books. <laughs> um, right. So he mostly talks about like how quickly he managed to get Swamp Thing cancelled, how bad of an idea it was to make his first ongoing book, uh, a book best known for an Alan Moore run. Right. But yeah, how he hasn't read these stories in 15 years. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's so. Yeah, that's basically what I know about Swamp Thing is that he's known for an Alan Moore run. He weirdly like has a TV show, right? Yeah, <laughs> or had, had one, or, like a one, movie uh, or something. One season, beloved by fans, I believe. Oh, I meant like an old. Isn't there an old There's TV a West show? Craven movies, of course. What oh, you're thinking of? I gotta so, watch that. Yeah. So after the Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson run, the character was like retired, basically. But then Wes Craven made a Swamp Thing movie, and they were like, all right, time for Swamp Thing to come back. And that was when they launched the book that Alan Moore eventually took over with issue 19. And he and so Swamp Thing was always like this, correct? In some form or fashion? Or, like, was he ever, like, a superhero? Oh, oh no. He, he was definitely, like... So it's, it's kind of complicated. He always was, like, a swamp monster, like, shambling, uh, you know... But he interacted with heroes a fair bit. Like he had, he there's like a fairly famous Superman team up issue. He had like a few run-ins with Batman. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say he was ever like a superhero proper. Like he, you know, he lives in the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> well, like my favorite superhero, Shrek. <laughs> a bit of a swamp thing himself. Yeah, no, he's he's very much in the vein of like the Heap or Man Thing at Marvel, uh, like just sort of like a creature feature, a force of nature. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, it's hot chocolates, you sexy thing, but it's you swampy thing and Trek singing it. That's my pitch. <laughs> All right, we'll do. Be, I get, we'll be playing that the at part? the end of the episode. <laughs> Christopher's cover. Yeah, I will, I will you cover and record thing. it. <laughs> In character as Shrek. <laughs> but that, that's, that's too good of an idea not to do now. It's like... See if you can sell it as an Uber Eats ad. <laughs> sure, why not? Mike Myers is under contract. Is that what you're yeah, getting at? Yeah, because he did the Wayne's World thing. 
Right. And there's also, there's an, so generally it just seems like there's a lot of critically well-regarded Swamp Thing runs. Because there, there was a newer one, like New 52, yeah. about 10 years ago that was quite liked, wasn't it? Yeah. So, or was it more Animal Man? Uh, no, no, Swamp Thing was good too. So the, yeah, the history is like Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, which is like well-regarded, if not necessarily held up as like, you know, a must-read all-time great, but, you know, well, well-liked, well-respected. I wish I could remember the name of the guy who wrote the first uh, 18 issues or 19 issues of the second run, but I simply can't, and I think there was actually two writers someone filled in. Martin Pasco and Dan Mishkin? <laughs> No. Uh, and then, That's what it says on oh, Wikipedia. Oh, right. Are you scoffing at me? I, I, Did you think I was naming the lead singer and guitarist of Hot Chocolate? <laughs> I, well, I kind of recognized the names, so I was like, this is a reference of some kind. Christopher can't possibly actually know the names of two writers, so I immediately dismissed it. Uh, but sure, let's go with that. I believe Dan Pishkin was the fill-in and Martin Pasco was the regular, but that could be completely wrong. Oh no, Dan Pishkin was the artist. No, Tom Yates was the artist. Oh, boy. I'm going to stop making things up. The point is, <laughs> they wrote a run. It was, like, on the brink of cancellation. Um, and then Alan Moore came in. It was a huge hit. And then the artist who had been doing the pencils for the latter part of his run, Rick Veach, took over as the scripter as well after Alan Moore left. His run, also pretty well regarded. I think at that point they... So he left the book because he wanted, to, in his last issue, he wanted to... <laughs> This is a crazy sentence. He wanted to depict Swamp Thing as the person giving Jesus a drink while he was on the cross. <laughs> De- okay, define depict. Like, show him on panel giving Jesus a drink of water as he was hanging on the cross. I believe As they a were... metaphor or no, a no, no. time like a a, thing that happened? Like, Swamp Thing was at the crucifixion and he gave Jesus a drink of water, literally. I'm not sure. I haven't read the Rick Veach issues in a long time. Anyways, that issue was never released. So I'm not sure if it was intended to be like the Swamp Thing that we know and love or a previous incarnation because he has had many incarnations. But he wanted to do that. It was very controversial at the time. DC was like, no. Rick Veach was like, you told me I could do whatever I want with this book. So publish publish Swamp Thing giving Jesus a drink of water or I'm out. They were like, we're not going to do it. So he left the book. I think it went through a series of fill-in artists at that point and then uh, and, and writers. And then they brought in Nancy A. Collins, who is best known as like a horror novelist at the time. And she did a run that I haven't read, but uh, want to. They just released a new omnibus of it. Um, but like kind of went back to sort of the horror roots. And I believe it was well-liked. Then I get a little murky on it. I'm not sure if Mark Miller... So Mark Miller did a run that is apparently good. I'm not sure if that was before this one or after it, because he's... Yeah, I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing an Errol Brown, Tony Wilson run that happens in between those two. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You really sold that's, it. Those are the lead singer and guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, Vaughn and Miller are kind of contemporaries, so I'm not sure which order that was in, but... So Grant Grant Morrison does four issues, and Mark Miller co-wrote those, and then Mark Miller... Continued. Took, yes, took over, yeah. and had some ambitious plans from it, but it, they never really materialized. They were like a weird... Uh, we should do one or both of those uh, two at some point, because they were like... They have a weird 
intermingled career where they were like a writing team at first and then they had like a huge falling out and now they just like trash talk each other's work and both take credit for their co-written stories being good anyways so yeah that new 52 rolls around scott snyder did a run he at the time was also becoming big for like his batman work and american vampire i have read it it's pretty good i think the charles soul run that follows is better liked and then they've, they've taken, like, a bunch of bites at the apple lately because they know that he's got, like, a cult following and he's a popular character. So they keep trying to get him to hit, and, like, it's not really happening. Tom King, who's kind of, like, an it writer right now, wrote, like, a winter special. Mark Russell, who's, like, one of my favorite currently working writers, is working on, I think, a miniseries for him right now. He's got, like, a title in the new Future State event that they're doing currently. Yeah, they, they keep trying to make it happen. It's not really happening. Not necessarily because the books aren't good, just for whatever reason, it, it doesn't seem to be enough to sustain an ongoing. Yeah, uh, Ledween also did a miniseries yes, a few he years did. ago. Yes, he did come back to it. So we're basically like in the middle of the Swamp Thing life cycle right now, which kind of makes sense because it's like turn of the millennium. <laughs> um, the big thing, which I did not know about this run, is it's not about the guy. Yeah, it's not about the titular Swamp Thing. It's not about that big man with the moss. Well, he's not a man. He's a swamp thing. Okay. He, so he's like a pile, they talk about this in the comic itself, that he's just like, he's a pile of magical plants that have the memories of a man that used to like be inside them, kind of. Yes. So, well, so the original origin story as done by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson was Alec Holland was a scientist working on a quote unquote biorestorative formula that was supposed to like make plants grow anywhere his work was sabotaged by terrorists um and his lab Naturally. blew up and he got like so he was on fire covered in biorestorative formula and then like ran into the swamp and was transformed through all those chemical processes into the swamp thing so alan moore's like big first move when he came on the book was to retcon it in um a famous issue the anatomy lesson to reveal that in fact alec holland had died but his, like, psychic imprint had gone into a, like, gestating earth elemental and convinced, basically create the, like, newly created swamp thing, thought he was Alec Holland, but in fact never had been and only had his memories. And then there's, like, a great issue where he goes and finds Alec Holland's body and buries it. Good stuff. Right. And, yes, and you can definitely see some of those same sort of thematic territory being, uh, trod on in this series as well which we'll get into um what was i oh len ween sounds like a 90s alternative compilation <laughs> okay <laughs> you got steal my sunshine and ocean man uh, on there. <laughs> okay let's let's uh we're at a good clean 33 minutes coming up here let's get into the comic shall we yes yeah, so we can begin with my favorite segment uh-huh. just what is going on here um, pretty boring one. Uh-huh. I went with, I didn't go with the cover of the trade paperback itself. Which I believe is the, oh no, actually it's number two that uses the Vertigo uh, Secret Files special as the cover, right? The second one is her standing with her hands in her pockets and the Swamp Thing is behind her. The first one is the Swamp Thing carrying her, her being Tefe? Yes. Yeah, that's Tefe, man. <laughs> it's not just a river in somewhere in South Brazil. America. Is it Brazil? I believe so, based on my limited I research. I don't think they specifically identified it in the Alan Moore run. But sure, let's say Brazil. 
Yes. Yeah, so the first, the cover of the first issue is it's just Tefe, who is, as we learn, uh, <laughs> and I will of course be able to explain this very cleanly. <laughs> it's the son of the daughter. Right. <laughs> Good start. The sonnet of. Okay, so what's his wife's name? Abby. So Abigail Arcane, me Cable, me Holland. So she's currently Abigail Holland. Her she's previously married to Matt Cable, so she was Abigail Cable for a long time. Before that, she was Abigail Arcane. So it's Abigail Holland, and this this is all revealed over the course of the comic. Oh, it's uh, it's depicted in the Rick Veach run. <laughs> Swamp Thing inhabited Constantine's body. Excuse me, I have to lean in and correct you and uh, remind you that Constantine is only the movie version, as his fans will tell you at every possible turn. His you name have is to say John Constantine. Constantine. Oh, well, I should change that. <laughs> they really should, especially because he brings up the Constantine at one point in this run. Uh, he, he makes a joke about the Constantine, and I was like, that's funny and worth changing it to Constantine just for that. But it, there's a lot of zine talk in this. Well, it is um, the year 2000. <laughs> yeah, this is very much the year 2000 in a lot of ways that we will get into. So you've distracted me. Now I have to start from the beginning. So Abigail Holland. Okay, so what happens is Abigail. <laughs> no, it's my turn. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm go doing for it. it. Go off. You can't see. I'm making a diamond with my head so I can think harder. <laughs> Abigail Holland. Um, so John Constantine was possessed by the Swamp Thing, who is Alec Holland, but not, and used his body to, you know, and that made a baby but the baby wasn't just the two of the three of them i suppose it was also and this is not mentioned in the book i saw this online somewhere is also like a wandering forest spirit who (laughs) comes into the baby so what happened was (laughs) at the in the like latter stages of alan moore's run lex Luthor basically helps uh swamp things enemies in the government assassinate him by like neutralizing his ability to move into new bodies so i referenced this a bit slash i think he demonstrates it at one point because his body is just vegetable, he can, like, move his consciousness to any other vegetable and, like, grow himself a new body. So they neutralized that ability and killed the body he was in. Um, and he had to, like, flee Earth to find vegetation that he could inhabit again. So he was off of Earth for, like, several months and presumed dead by all, including the Parliament of Trees, which is, like, the, the collective consciousness of all Earth elementals and guardians of, like, plant life on Earth. So they went about the process. They were like, we still need a swamp thing. So they created a sprout, as it's frequently called in the comics, which was like going to grow into a new swamp thing. But then swamp thing came back. So they were like, all right, we don't need the sprout. Let's kill it. And swamp thing was like, that's not chill. How about instead I impregnate my wife with it and raise it as my daughter? (laughs) So, yes, then he inhabited John Constantine's body, uh, implanted uh, the seed slash sprout in her. She gave birth to Tefe as a result of her bizarre conception. She not only has all of Swamp Thing's control over vegetation, but also, as we see, to horrifying effect throughout the series, control over flesh. Yes, this rule. She is a flesh bender. Oh, gross. Um, 
which yes, we will get into. Um, so let's finally <laughs> dig into the comic. <laughs> well, I want to I want to take a brief uh, comment on mm-hmm. you know, just what is going on here, which is that uh, every time I see the covers for this series, and this is kind of a general like two thousands vertigo thing, but. It always makes me think of the line in Captain Marvel where uh, Nick Fury describes her as looking like someone's disaffected niece. <laughs> Definitely has big <laughs> disaffected niece energy, I would say, on, sure. on all of these covers. Yeah, especially the the volume two where she like has like the hunched shoulders yeah. and her hands and are in the pockets. Top. Like, yes, a lot of midriff in this comic. Certainly. Like a lot of like this to me like very much screams late nineties, early two thousands. Like just random sort of like not not even cheesecakey shots but like this is an adult comic shot so we can like show women in their underwear and we can swear a lot yeah i i wouldn't necessarily say that i found the depiction of like women's bodies specifically as being like unusual uh even even the shot well, i don't the think first... it's unusual <laughs> right but like like I, I think that most of the art for this comic would appear in like a mainstream DC, like a not a mature reader's DC comic at the time, right? Without really any issue. Like the flesh bending stuff is gross, but not not like so gross that it couldn't be in a regular issue of a DC comic. The only shot that I was like, they might think twice about this is like the opening page of the first yeah, issue for the first page of the first <laughs> issue. Which is, uh, well, we'll we'll talk about the prequel bit uh, in a sec. But yes, the first page being like a dead young girl's body naked with her throat slit being like conveniently her modesty is being preserved. <laughs> By in the death. panel borders. <laughs> but they're not, <laughs> but like, it's like they're, you, I'm they're so. not panels. Like it's just like they drew a full page spread and then like put some panels yeah, on they top did, like, they definitely did overlay a grid over it to just fit it because she's on the football field the freaking gridiron yeah i was making my way there to a gross joke about completion um in what? the in the understanding comic sense because of the placement of the gutters being what is preserving oh. modesty just just know that the that's out of there. the gutters <laughs> i'll tell you what's been placed in the gutters my freaking mind Oh, this guy's crazy. Um, but yes, but the the trade paperback that I assume you're also reading from, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, so the trade paperback begins with a mini story from the Vertigo Winter's Edge anthology series. And it's like a little prequel, which is pretty important, it feels like. Or at least, you know, it, it adds some context for sure. Um, it opens with a cop saying, go fuck yourself. And that's when I was like, okay. <laughs> hey, this seems like it's for mature readers. It's a good thing the freaking kiddos aren't reading this one. Let me just say that. Yeah. If, it, if I have a, a big criticism of the book as a whole, it's that it's got a real Deadpool 2 energy, which is to <laughs> say that it's more concerned with like showing that it is uh, an R-rated comic than... It is with like actually having a reason to be an R-rated comic, right? Like you could you could edit this down to like a T plus to use the uh, the comics ratings with like pretty minimal editing. Yeah, that's that was my sense as well. So yeah, so this story it begins. With, it's a it's a pretty. I like this story actually. It was one of my more. I didn't dislike this book, but with what we've read so far, I it didn't do a lot for me and there are some issues i find 
more objectionable or less enjoyable than others. Um, but this is a fun story. It's sort of a, just about like he's a what a botany professor, and he killed his wife because his wife accidentally killed their daughter. Another thing that will be retread later. Um, and then Tefe shows up and basically just gives him some mistletoe and she gets to eat that. Uh, he gets to eat that, rather. I'm sure she could eat that if she wanted to. Probably. But as she'll remind us several times, she does not need to eat. Yes, or sleep. But yes, but then we go into right into issue number one, which is where we sort of get the the full origin here. So ha- have you read this before? I had not read this before, no. I've only read uh, the more issues and the future issues and the future issues a long time ago. And and the more issues originally a long time ago as well. I originally reread the more issues because I misremembered that Tefe's conception story was in those issues. <laughs> so I like reread the whole run, like waiting for it to come up. <laughs> it just never did. And I was like, oh, right, because it happens in like the first issue of the written feature run. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, that's the thing that we sort of get into here that we really haven't had to deal with up to this point, which is comics continuity. Like everything we've read so far has been either like self-contained or like Superman Adventures. It was the we read the beginning of a new series that was only sort of tangentially tied to existing properties. Yeah, like didn't really have a continuity anyways. Yeah. And so now we are like in, I guess, like the Vertigo version of the D, like Presumably they populate the same universe, but they don't really overlap much, do they? Or does Constantine... So it's never really been clear. I would say Constantine and, um, like, the Endless from Sandman are the characters who most frequently sort of, like, rear their heads in the mainstream DC universe, in part because they're, like, the most recognizable and popular characters from the from the Vertigo stuff. But I think trying to put Vertigo stuff as like being plausibly set in the DC universe is really like a nineties Vertigo thing. Um, and as time goes on, it turns into more of just like a, basically like a creator of the imprint at DC rather than anything that's attempting even to tie in. So I would say like, yeah, it's tricky because like Swamp Thing's continuity is definitely like rooted in the mainstream DC universe. Rooted. But I wouldn't say that, like, this book takes place in the mainstream DC universe. Yeah, I was a little surprised at how much continuity there is. Because I kind of associate Vertigo with, like, you're telling a story, it might be, like, it's about a character we know, maybe, but it doesn't really necessarily have to follow, like, that level of continuity that it might have to in a mainstream series. Yeah, it's like a little fresh starty. Yeah. But, yeah, not not so much this book. No. Um, so... You were you surprised at, <laughs> at what this issue is and sort of what it becomes? Um, so I I had already known that Mary Conway, who's the girl that we're introduced to, was Tefe, but I was surprised like the extent to which like I did I didn't know really any of the other backstory. So I was surprised that she like basically remained Mary Conway for the entire issue that Tefe isn't really even introduced in this issue at all. But yeah, the reveal that that it is Tefe was not a surprise to me. Okay. Yeah, because this this issue is pretty interesting now, like thinking back on it, having read the first 10 issues, because it's so, there's so much, like, I wouldn't say business per se, but it's so much a story about Mary Conway, like, and in a way, I guess, is intended to be shocking in that way. But I guess, like, so, like, if I were picking this up in the year 2000, I would 
probably be would I be reading this being like where are where's Swamp Thing, or would I be yes. reading this being like when's she gonna turn into Swamp Thing? No, I, you would be reading this like where's Swamp Thing? Okay, like who who's this Mary Conway girl? What's this about? Like, there's hints like John Constantine has like a weird little insert panel that she kind of like hallucinates him a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think and like I think at the very beginning, as I recall, oh maybe not. Yeah, so I was thinking about it reading through because sorry i what i meant to say is that i I like the structure of this issue with the narration where you're supposed to think that the narration is from mary conway's mother and with the reveal that mary conway is tefe you find out that it's actually abigail arcane's uh narration i think is a good setup for sort of like the entry point for the swamp thing universe to kind of come in but i yeah the second issue i'm not crazy about yeah that so that that first issue it did confuse me that big i guess because i don't have that context i was just like wait who i i sort of got that the narrator like was originally supposed to seem like mary conway's mother and then it sort of shifts but i didn't quite understand who i was like oh so is it swamp thing talking but the narrator <laughs> already like talked about being a mother so that doesn't make any sense but anyways yeah so that so basically the first like 20 pages of this are like just like a slice of life ish story with like obviously like some dark undercurrents and the narration definitely adds that little bit of darkness to it certainly but i i think it is definitely intended that when she explodes out of her own skin and then violently murders her boyfriend and best friend, that that is... <laughs> that's meant to be surprising? <laughs> yeah, I think that's intended to be a tonal shift of sorts. <laughs> yeah, so so we are introduced to Mary Connor, and it was a bit of a bummer, because I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I like a good slice of life story, for sure. It's like, she was, she's a high school student, um, not unlike Steve Carell's character in Welcome to Marwin. She oh, <laughs> has lost all memories of her previous life. <laughs> and yes, yeah, so, so she has been, it's been three years since she awoke from this coma, um, which she suffered because, or was put in because of a terminal illness and then has woken up with no memories and is sort of getting back on the horse. She's a fencer. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, so, there's just like so much weird specific stuff <laughs> that it's so strange that all of it is basically entirely discarded. Yeah. With the exception of, like, the second issue. But yes, and then, so then they're going along, they're at the prom, and then she sees her boyfriend and her best friend hooking up, and then she freaks out. She, as you said, tears off her own skin. She, I guess, sort of reactivates her memory, but not really. It's not, yeah, it's like... not made very clear, like, what that does for her, because it still seems like she doesn't really know or remember anything. Well, uh, she does say, I remember. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we are given to understand that after an initial moment of confusion, she remembers pretty much everything about who she is and what she knows of her powers. She throws off her own skin. She makes a tree grow out of her friend's body. And then she wraps up her boyfriend in a bunch of grass and and bugs eaten alive by bugs yeah. yeah bugs eat him until he's a skeleton um and fly off with his glasses <laughs> apparently he's really more of a desiccated mummy it's than true a he's more he's more of a mummy than a skeleton it's true and then her arms get all goopy and then she yeah she like sloughs off her skin again she and then she forges a facsimile of her own i.e mary conway's body 
out of flash. Wait, what is this? David Smith, main character from The Sculptor. Oh. <laughs> How could I forget? How indeed. Yeah, she gives an explanation for this later on where she describes making her sexual organs work like a Oh pistol, yeah, she uh, does say that, doesn't like she? Stamen. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I have a no clue. <laughs> like, I, maybe that she's describing that to be like, that's how I made all this extra skin. Oh. To, like, be the meat of the... Oh, that's, tr- that's right. I'm afraid that's right. But it's just, like, falling off her arms. Like, I don't see... Yeah. I, don't, I don't see where her sexual organs come into it at all from these pages. Anyways. <laughs> she forges a flesh dummy... <laughs> of Mary Conway and then goes off. So it seems like it's like a murder suicide of some description or some like, it's it's not entirely clear basically what has happened. And then you get, as Mary Conway's mother puts it, Abby Cable shows up. Well, hold on. I first have an important question to you. Mm -hmm. You've just murdered your uh, boyfriend, best friend and self and assume a new identity would you go to their funeral would you go to would you go to your funeral yeah for sure as she does well they're they're her friends yeah and it's also like there's no risk associated with it because no one knows who you are that's true although when she runs out in the middle of the service that may <laughs> strike someone as slightly suspicious really <laughs> like hey maybe she killed him <laughs> uh, who knows it is uh, it is a mystery to be sure Yes. Anyways, um, so then Tefe's real mother appears, and then we get the full story. We get what this is one well, of the things see, okay. I found a little bit uh, unpleasant is we start with a set of scenes of nuclear explosions and like the World War II nuclear bombs, uh, female genital mutilation, yeah, and Irish car bombings or bombings, which I just yeah. found to be. <laughs> A little bit unsavory. It is. It is a bit much. I also like. Yeah, it, a bit much is kind of the the go to word or like phrase I would use to describe a lot of what happens in some of the issues that we're covering today. I also don't really love that this is the second of like four rehashings of her origin that we get in the span of ten issues. <laughs> like. Yeah, we relitigate this information a lot a because lot. like it's basically the only like overarching plot thread that we've seen so far. I mean, it seems like we're heading towards something by the end of the first 10, but it's basically the only like ongoing piece of narrative structure we have yes. for like most for ha- probably half of the run. So we get so this is like there's an A and B story in this issue and the A story is basically like full exposition dump by Abby Cable to basically just tell us things that we think for the most part already know. Oh, see, I didn't know this. Oh, maybe but, not. But as a, as a reader, you would know this? Um, like, as someone who knew about Swamp Thing, you would know this? Well, no. Some of it, yes, some of it, no. Oh, right, because she goes over the, uh, the like, how they, how they put her in Mary Conway's body and stuff. So that stuff, definitely no. Yeah, um, and then I, you're alluding to the B story, which is Tefe going to the green, which I had not seen before. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to, I, or I was hoping to kind of like remind myself about the origin of like the green as a term, and I, I wasn't really able to because, 
Like Moore introduces this idea of sort of like the collective consciousness of all plant life, and he refers to it in like an early issue as like a green world, and and Swamp Thing will occasionally allude to like or make reference to the green, but not. It wasn't. It was like when he talked about the green, it was never like uh, a place uh, or like a concrete a, location, like a realized concept, like it is in this issue, where it's like now I am in like a realm and that realm is called the green and everyone who lives here calls it the green and like we understand the source of my powers to be the green it's like a city yeah and in jeff lemire's animal man they'll establish the concepts uh, i think jeff lemire's animal man actually um grant morrison might have done it i can't recall but anyways they'll establish the concept of like the red yes this is something i'm sort of familiar with yeah animal man is like the avatar of the red and then the rot which uh, Anton Arcane is the avatar of, but like, yeah, none of none of that stuff. I can't figure out exactly where that stuff kind of originated. But anyways, she goes there. She talks to Grass and finds out that it wants to kill all humans and uh, wants her to do it. Yes, we got these two. I would I would agree with you that this uh, this issue is problematic from a my interest in it perspective. <laughs> well, the, I feel like Abby's part of it just is done so inelegantly and there's just more interesting ways to convey all the information that she it's conveys. It's such a dump of exposition like here's a character who doesn't know like why is she telling her this exactly like, like she feels She's guilty like, I guess. guilty about it yeah but that's basically it and like yeah to have to have the conclusion of it to be like her getting slapped and being like go away you insane person what are you talking about <laughs> is fitting. Yeah the, the Abby Arcane A story is done like in the most inelegant way possible and then the b story feels like it needs to be just like its own whole issue like it feels unrealized well let's be clear this is an issue with noel in it (laughs) noel is in this issue uh with a k and an n he looks like i can't remember who it is but a character actor from the 90s (laughs) who has like it's like black hair on top, salt and pepper on the sides. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just has the energy of like someone who would show up for like three episodes in like I don't know Hill Street Blues or in oh, Boston Legal. Yeah. yeah, that kind of, like a uh, some kind of '90s procedural show. <laughs> but yeah, to to have like the introduction of a the idea that like the Parliament of Trees is dead. B all of the green is dying and they want to wage war on humanity. C. Tefe is viewed by the green as their weapon against humanity and they want her to uh, destroy all humans. Is that thing of a video game? Or... It certainly is. There were two yeah. of them. They want her to destroy all humans too. <laughs> and D. She is like undecided is like a huge amount of information and it feels like character events that need room to breathe and to to give it like 11 pages tops yeah it just it just feels like that's a lot to ask of half of one issue yeah um e some people call it the big g (laughs) and oh that's like a real thing right yes he says he's noel says the big g uh and f there's a p gondola (laughs) A lot of a uh, lot of letters here. E is the big G and F is the, <laughs> the gondola P. <laughs> the GP. Ah, uh, yeah. So the parliamentary is there 
burned up question mark yeah because they were too mortal <laughs> says Noel. yeah because the, because they all all of the earth elementals have origin stories similar to swamp thing as we know him now so they all also had humans like psyches imprinted upon them so yeah that's that's why he's saying like they're basically humans because they had like human brain patterns and and thought like humans so it's not really clear why they're dead i think what we're kind of meant to believe is or or what's suggested later on is that it's a consequence of pollution basically but Noel sort of suggests that they like somehow brought it on themselves. I see now reading it now, my read on it would maybe be like they were sort of trying to broker peace. And so like the Knowles of the world who are like plant supremacists, <laughs> like burned them down basically. Maybe, well, I don't know. It's, that maybe we'll find out more in the next 10 issues but yes it's very confusing it's a lot to dump on you like you said it's a lot to dump on you in one issue especially an issue that also includes lumberjacks strung up to trees like yeah. paper dolls yeah so the the story that abby tells basically that tefe like always was like basically a sociopath <laughs> which is certainly how i characterize a lot of her behavior throughout this this stretch of issues but killed people on the regular we were basically like our daughter's a sociopath what can we do john constantine was like i have an idea we'll replace this dying girl with her hey it worked for me and earl yeah. <laughs> um yes and so yes we can maybe get into this what it's kind of confusing as to how tefe is being characterized throughout this run like uh, well and they, they sort of do talk about this how like sometimes she seems sort of very childlike and innocent and sort of ignorant of the ways of the world and then other times she seems very like sadistic and yeah. like very uncaring with human lives and sort of considering herself outside of the plane of human existence and so it's it's it can be a little confusing and a little like whiplashy at times like it's it's almost like a sort of I'm learning how to be human story, but also not quite. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it basically is. She one of these issues basically has her like discovering that she has a conscience. But I think what we're meant to understand is that she is like a little too much the earth elemental at first, and kind of has the same like the force of nature thing that we were talking about with Swamp Thing before, she has that same sort of like, it's dispassionate, but also it's like too passionate where like, she doesn't really have any regard for human life. And also when she sees humans disregarding plant life, it makes her very angry. Uh, even though she doesn't really seem to like fully understand why, at least at first, but then also to like confuse matters further. I don't really think they ever spell it out exactly but when they transform her into mary holland it like ages her up fairly considerably mary like i conway. think she's like 11 uh yeah mary, whoops mary mary conway <laughs> not, not, uh, not, not impro improviser and character actress <laughs> mary holland from happiest season yes yeah, not uh, not mary holland mary conway anyways i believe she's supposed to be like 11 when right they do this ritual and then Mary Conway is like 15. 
when she wakes up, plus three years. She's a senior in high school. So, yeah, Tefe is definitely meant to be 18 as of, like, issue one. She, it feels like she's meant to be, like, conveniently 18. Like, she's 18. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, she could Definitely. do... She's not a child. Yeah. She's 18. Comics, comics has not yet, at this point, apparently learned that aged-up characters <laughs> are not not a carte blanche. <laughs> well, when you think about it, since she's a plant, she's really immortal. So she could be thousands of years old. True. She was born in the 80s. Oh, wait, but this takes place in 2000. <laughs> whoops anyways um so that's like a whole other element that yeah they're like she's so young but also she's so old yes and then yeah i mean like you know i think feel like we've sort of said it all here she kind of pieces out of the green undecided critically she says i think she says i'm on my own side yes he he says like you had to pick a side and she says she's on her own side and then comes what I would consider to be the worst issue in this run by a comfortable margin. Like, a borderline embarrassing issue where... This is also where the timeline gets really confusing. Yes. Because this takes place after the safari issue. Right. But before the, like, forest fire issue. Yeah, so she gets... She, like, shipwrecks and then gets discovered by... Wait, hold on. It's so confusing because... She does get discovered by Barnabas, by Barnabas, like, after her weird ship thing. Anyways, we'll focus on this issue for now, because there's a lot to unpack in this issue. Yeah. So, this this is, like, where... Well, I guess the first issue had, had already kind of kicked off this trend, but there's, like, a stretch of issues here where Tefe is never the narrator. It's always, it's always another... Like, they kind of use Tefe as an excuse to tell a story about a different character. So, like, issue one is about Mary Conway, like, uh, as she was before through, you know, kind of the mother's perspective. Issue two, I guess, is, like, about Tefe, but also through Abby Arcane's perspective. And then, but yeah, then then we start to get into these very episodic kind of, like, where is she this week? Yeah, like, like Incredible Hulk... She does. Yeah, she like finds herself somewhere. Stranger. Yeah, yeah, and and her her presence serves as a catalyst to sort of like reveal things about the people who she encounters is before that, she like moves is on. That what it's meant to be? I think I think that's what they're kind of going for because it's not until like issue like seven or eight that she becomes the like perspective narrator. Right. Yeah. So this issue is it's got so much going on. It's like a meta. It's like very metatextually about writing, which is a little embarrassing when you're like in a late '90s, early 2000s comic that is like trying to be cinematic slash literary. Like, oh yeah, and when you're a, a writer's like sixth published comic, <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't I don't quite understand who or what this is meant to be like a takeoff of because it does very much feel like it's trying to emulate something but i'm not totally sure what that is it it feels like it's got a weirdly kind of like buffyish energy to me for some reason Mm -hmm. like not not any specific sort of like story yeah but but just the whole energy of like you've got this kind of like 
teenage protagonist heroine with attitude. Yeah, it just just the whole tone of it where it's kind of like, this is a story that's about the art of telling stories and it's kind of a joke, but also it's kind of serious. Oh, I did not, I did not perceive it as a joke. <laughs> I thought it was I know what you to mean, be a like, little, like a little tongue in cheek. Yeah, the I, point, I the say, point is that the, 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 the pretentious writer guy is like an insane murderer. That's true. Yeah. And, and I did think it was like, so I was really cringing on the first page, which is where it's shots of Tefe, and then it's got, like, excerpts of the writing, but it's, like, one of her fellow crew members on this, like, crabbing ship is trying to capture her perspective, but I thought it was supposed to be from her perspective when I first started reading it, and I was like, even as a, like, trying to capture what a bad writer would write like, this is still, like, weirdly cringe-inducing. Yeah, it's, so it's like it's like little, like, snippets of story as if it's the opening lines of a book that's like, no, 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 that's not right. I need to do it a different way. And it's like, oh, that sounds bad. I need to do it this way. Yeah. I, I So what I really didn't like when I thought it was her perspective was when he says, that reads like Melville by way of John Grisham. And I was like, okay... This character is functionally 11, (laughs) (laughs) but even if she was 18, (laughs) but anyways, so we learned that it's not her writing those things. Yes. And I don't think we mentioned that (laughs) this issue takes place on a crab boat. Oh, I said a crabbing, one of her crabbing vessel crewmates. (laughs) This is, this is a deadliest catch (laughs) type episode. Um, where... If you think about it, the deadliest catch of all is plants. So, so true. (laughs) I will say, like, by and large, like I mentioned, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek here in that, like, the bad writer slash murderer is, like, sort of a joke, but the series as a whole seems to be, like, totally devoid of humor, which is kind of weird when, like, we'll get into it, but I think... Uh, a lighter tone even in some of like the darker scenes and like reliance on kind of witty humor is really a staple of Vaughn's writing yeah this is just really like a weird sample of of I guess what what early Brian Vaughn thought was like his avenue to success but it's just weirdly grim weirdly humorless even when it seems like it's kind of trying to be funny it just feels so like cynical or like acerbic or i i don't know it feels like he's kind of going for a tone that isn't really his yeah it's so i think it starts out as the sort of like it's funny that this guy is like such a bad writer and he's like trying to so bad yeah but then i think it's like the turn is meant to be like oh this guy's actually crazy and he wants (laughs) there's a literal very much a psycho take (laughs) where he wants to kill everyone because that's the ending to his book. and But that's like, I think that's what I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, like, this guy isn't just a bad writer. He's crazy. <laughs> He's off his gourd. And it's just like, what? Like, what? What? <laughs> like, it, it comes out so out of nowhere that this guy's like a mass murderer, especially that like, well, Tefe just happened. Like, she didn't do anything to cause this. Like, she's not really. She germ- drove him crazy by, by being mysterious. An ineffable, uh, yeah. And, and a, maybe that was the problem. She was uneffable for him. Oh, boy. She's 18, you know. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, like, so, so like this, this is just like a thing that happens while she happens to be there that this guy tries to murder everyone. He pretends to write a note telling the captain's daughter or from the captain's daughter telling another guy that she's pregnant no no he finds the note it's a oh it's that's a, a real, real note, note. Oh. yeah it's from the captain's daughter to his roommate hank that she's pregnant and hopes that he'll marry her 
But yeah, the whole, like, all of the killings seem insanely improbable. Yes, they think that they think Kang did it, and so their reaction is <laughs> so to hang, hang him. him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's insane. <laughs> the, the captain is literally like, according to maritime law, this is my right. <laughs> like, they, they do the craziest hanging, which is to say he starts standing and then they like hoist him up by the neck yes and then (laughs) it's so crazy (laughs) and then like the she accuses let's let's lay out the cast of characters here so that we understand clearly so there's the mysterious stranger (laughs) because it's an insanely convoluted plot there's tefe the captain of this crabbing vessel the captain's daughter who is also his first mate yeah and who has despite her dreams, know no other life but crabbing. (laughs) Hank, who is, uh, like, kind of the senior, non-ranking crew person who's been working the ship for ages, is having a covert affair with Cheryl that the captain would not approve of. Larry, who is the writer-slash-murderer. And that's it. And Tefe. The five of them. Yeah, and Tefe. I I thought I said Tefe first. Anyways, it's the five of them. So, Larry murders Tefe frames Hank successfully for the murder of Tefe, like convinces the captain that he did it. The captain executes (laughs) Hank in accordance with maritime law. By hanging. Yeah. Cheryl, I can't remember how, but Cheryl becomes paranoid and comes to believe that... She pulls a gun on her father and then accuses him of killing Hank, of framing Hank. Because yeah, so he found out that she was pregnant, and the captain didn't like that. And so yeah. then Cheryl forces her father to jump into the <laughs> sea. Yes. And then, uh, oh, there's also... truly insane. And then after realizing that, for some reason, Larry, who has now been given a perfect cover... Yeah. Says, like, now absolves... Yeah, he tries to drive Cheryl to suicide, but... I guess uh-oh. so. The dead freaking speak. Tefe is back. <laughs> yes, and then Tefe comes back. Larry takes Cheryl as a hostage. He shoots her in the tummy and kills her baby, I guess. Yes. Which is, again, like, I think just meant to be like, whoa, like, this is so real. He just killed a baby. Uh, and then he is eaten by... She <laughs> throws him thrown into the, the like, crabs. <laughs> and they eat him. And then she uh, heals her, but also the baby is gone yeah this issue is deranged and so like when i got to this i was like oh no this is like horribly terribly bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I don't know it is definitely like a weird stretch for sure yes and then we get into stuff that, that that's in the same vein for sure but is definitely a little more interesting and like it doesn't involve an insanely convoluted murder plot there's there's a somewhat convoluted uh, safari plot in the next issue, but but yes, we we don't have to go issue by issue with these. But in the next issue, we are introduced to the character of Pilot, who is a former. It's it's that's the thing. It's like all of these characters have like the most what I would describe as like the most vertigo backstories, <laughs> where it's like he was in what was it? Is it Iran Panama. or Panama? And then he is ordered As, like, to... like, a Marine Corps sniper. <laughs> yes. And is ordered to kill an innocent woman and accidentally domes a baby. <laughs> oh, I, is that... Oh, you he... didn't see that? I, so I saw that he domed the baby, but I was kind of like, I don't feel that there is necessarily any suggestion that, like, he wouldn't have done that or, like, he didn't mean to do that. 
Oh, see, I think I think that I think the idea is like he. Oh, you think what what traumatized him was that he yes. saw that he killed the baby? Yes, she is seen like cowering with her back turned to him, and then the the person in his earpiece is like, "Take the shot, take the shot," and then he like shoots her, and then like Call of Duty Modern Warfare collaterals a baby. Right, adds three seconds to his time. It is crazy that he chose to shoot the cowering woman when he's basically being told, like, yeah, you can shoot, that moves, yeah. And shoot like, anyone and everyone, <laughs> not this cowering woman. But yes, and so he goes AWOL, he's dishonorably discharged, he ends up working at the safari, which is now, like, being terrorized by a lion. Yeah, so I, I was a little confused about, so yeah, Tefe, basically the framing story for Pilot's backstory is that he's working at a safari, there's a lion on the loose, and Tefe is like helping him try and track it down because she can, she she doesn't want him to kill it basically. Yeah, which seems like a weird move by her because she's more of a plant girl. Yeah, but there's there's like a an implication that the safari owner is like crooked in some way or like not totally above board. But I didn't fully. Yeah, I think it's just like he's kind of icky from like an environmentalist standpoint that he's like has all these doped up lions like just walking around. Right, but it, it seems like there's a, a suggestion that he had something to do with the lion being loose. And so yes, there's this whole lion story. It's sort of like a, it's just like a nature versus mankind kind of thing, which is obviously mm-hmm. a common theme here because of course it is. Pilot gives her some blank name tags and then we rejoin her waking up on the beach where she ended up after the boat was shipwrecked. Yeah, on the Alaskan shoreline. Yeah, I don't, like I said, the timeline gets a little confused here. Yeah, but yes, he says says that was six months ago. And then we cut ahead to her being shipwrecked, which presumably happened after the boat story. Yeah, it's, it's just weird because when we last see her in the boat story, like they are in the middle of a storm, but she's like conscious, fine... It's not really clear how it goes from where she was to shipwrecked. Cheryl is nowhere to be found. She's like unconscious on the shore. Yeah, it's true. But yes, and so and also in that issue, we sort of find out that Tefe has the power to. Oh, and I guess we can see it in the boat story as well. She has the power to heal living creatures at the cost of nature. Oh, right. Yes, that's sort of implied. Yes, the the running theme through these next few issues is sort of like emphasizing the tension between humanity and nature and showing how every time she chooses to help one she seems to be harmed right yes and i think this this is probably my favorite execution of that this next issue which is sort of part two of this little story um which is where she so she's now in alaska i believe we were meant to understand Mm -hmm. she's unveiled as a casual racist (laughs) it's true she's as (laughs) an offensive word for inuit people um but yeah so there's a forest fire happening she goes into the green and meets with this old tree hemlock who seems like a cool guy yeah hemlock chill the shot of him falling into the fiery maw is (laughs) kind of hilarious um and yes and so then she is sort of forced to make this decision as to whether she wants to do whatever the forest fire people do where it's like a controlled burn which will stuff out the fire, but it will cost them Hemlock, who we are to understand is sort of the leader of this group of trees or this forest. I believe what she's uh, being tasked to do is what I would call the Alfred maneuver, because I believe it's in one of the (laughs) Nolan Batman movies that uh, Alfred talks about how a way to put out a fire is to light a huge one right next Mm. to it. 
that true? I believe someone in one of the... I know what um, you mean. I'm becoming less and less sure that it's Alfred. That, but yeah, I, that's they, a very classic thing to talk about. Yeah, set, set a huge fire up and put both fires Yes, in. which is basically what she ends up doing. She flesh warps into... A dead firefighter, yeah, which is... Burned out bodies of... It's pretty cool, I will say. Like, it's so yeah. gross, but in a cool way. Um, and yes, and then she makes this decision only to find that... Yeah, she murders Hemlock, basically, and finds that the people that she did it to save, these campers, were the ones who started the forest fire in the first yes, place. Yes, and then all of the people who were... like the, So, yes, she goes into the green, and it's sort of personified in the form of, like, a giant fire dragon who is eating up all the tree people. And then when she returns to the tree world, to the green, I guess you would say, they all hate her because she has like killed their leader and now they're screwed, basically. And I think I think this is the best sort of execution of those ideas that you're talking about, where it's that she has to balance these very morally ambiguous decisions and it's really, there's no right answer. I really like the line that, she, that they have in sort of the middle of this issue, which is, Inuit stories aren't like fables or fairy tales. They don't have morals. They don't have clever twist endings. They just end. Which feels like that. that's sort of like where she's at. It's like there's no moral... Well, but the, the only moral really to her story is just like sometimes you have to make impossible decisions. And I, I, like, I like the way it's executed in this issue. Yeah, I would say it's one of the stronger issues in this, this stretch. We're introduced to Barnabas in this issue who will become a staple throughout... The, I think probably the rest of the run, but Seems certainly like it. the rest of the issues that we have read. He is a, an Alaskan firefighter who was disfigured in a fire at one point, apparently falls immediately in love with Tefe, and is, is escorted away at gunpoint at the end of this issue with her. Yeah. <laughs> or by her, I should say. They have, a, they have a bit of a contentious relationship here. But yes, and so the, the conclusion of this story is, like you said, that she finds out that the campers, which is like a family of three... They are the ones who started this forest fire and are very sort of nonchalant about it and are worried about like not having to pay for the damage. And so she like takes them at gunpoint and pulls a pulls a bit of a Sophie's choice on them, on the father, saying, Pick which one of the your wife or your daughter that you want me to kill. And then the the reveal is she doesn't kill anyone, but sort of the the fact that this choice has been raised and made by the father who chooses to kill his daughter is just cold yes has sort of uh chooses to kill his daughter with the line we can have another baby (laughs) and and like i I do like the way that like it's sort of portrayed as like this guy is just like incapable of like because he's like such a weak person and needs his wife is why like he can't make what would ostensibly seem like the morally correct choice which is like don't kill a child your wife is actively asking you to kill her instead um so that that's i really like that stuff yeah this this feels to me like the most alan moore kind of influence maybe of any of the issues because this sort of like examining examining the like devastating fallout of a traumatic situation he he doesn't often spend like a whole issue on it like this but i'm reminded of like there there's an issue in his run where uh when swamp thing is like wandering through outer space he's told there's a planet where like all of the creatures are vegetables basically and they might be able to help him figure out how he can like go back to earth safely so he goes there by like transporting himself into the village and realize that like all the vegetables there are sentient basically so he accidentally forms himself a body out of like all of these people (laughs) 
<laughs> who are like then joined into one That's like cool. collective consciousness and then the plant green lantern has to disassemble his body and teach him how to control <laughs> himself so he can go back to earth anyways that is all like kind of a device to tell a story about like a few different people and one of the the stories is about like this couple who as a result of like being joined in the like collective swamp thing consciousness come to know each other like fully and then when they're rescued are just like I hate you. <laughs> like we can never be together. So it, yeah, it feels it feels very kind of like Moorish in that way. Even though yeah, the it's a very like very different. It's and it's also a very superhero thing. But the sort of no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, and even if like no matter how hard you try to help, you're still going to end up hurting someone by mistake, and you kind of have to live with these consequences. Um, and then at the same time, we have a couple of other ongoing threads that become more prominent as time goes on. One of them is the government is hunting Tefe because like they see on a security camera that she's got these crazy powers and are worried justifiably so and then also there's like a plant samurai (laughs) yes i'm assuming that his uh his sword is eventually going to be revealed to be called grass cutter sure um yes who who has the power to hurt swamp thing which is a surprise to him and is also looking for tefe swamp thing and i can i always mix it's abby right yes so they they believe that she is dead but they send Constantine out to like make sure of that, which gets paid off later. Um, and then we have the... I'm trying to speed through these, because like I, <laughs> we, we tend to have a bad <laughs> habit of going issue by issue and being like, this panel is pretty cool. <laughs> well, sometimes there's a cool panel and you just need to talk about That's it. That's true. Um, and then we get into another... like This is another issue which felt just very like... This has some adult themes in it to me. Yeah. Where they go to a show because it's called Arcane... Which, you know, obviously Tefe sees as a connection. Yeah. They meet this girl, Georgie, who is like a huge fan of theirs. And then they le- they get backstage and meet with the band and leave her there. And she ends up getting raped. And, you know. Tefe comes and exacts brutal justice and then victim blames her. Yes. Tough, real tough issue for Tefe, this one. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's very, like... And, and again, like, it's, it's showing the sort of moral ambiguity or moral malfeasance of Tefe that she doesn't quite have, like, this humanity or doesn't quite have a human sort of heart in that way. Um, yeah, but I, it, it I does... was like... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I was interested to read, uh, like, a, an interview that Vaughn did much later where he said one of the things he liked about writing Tefe is that she's, like, the unlikable female protagonist, which, like, is not usually allowed to exist in comics, which is, like, true, and also, like, she's real unlikable <laughs> in this issue. Yeah, it can it, it can be a little hard to deal with her at times. And then, so this segues in, so is this the part that you said was in the secret files where yes. she so it's it's sort of like melded into one issue here i guess she goes and visits the old father at the prep school which which she was attending as mary conway and they talk about which i'm surprised that this is in like a, a different issue because this sort of sets the tone for a lot of what becomes the overarching plot which is that they talk about or what when does the tree of knowledge first come into it as a concept i think that was from her 
first trip to the green. That was my thought as well. I you to go look back and look because, yeah, like I, like I said, and, and if it is, then add that as point G right. <laughs> of like a huge driving plot point for like these, this stretch of issues that is introduced so offhandedly that we can't even remember where it is first like brought up. Yeah. So she, so, so it's sort of, the idea is germinated plant joke. Uh, <laughs> somewhere that the the yes the classic biblical concept of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which obviously appeals to Tefe because you know she's like if I find this, then I'll know what I have to do. Um, so she goes to see her old teacher, and he's just sort of looks at it from a very <laughs> Christian point of view. Um, but yes, and so this sort of becomes the ongoing arc of it is that she is searching for this tree of knowledge in various places and seeking answers from various people. She asks Hemlock about it when she meets him. Um, and then we get into another rape scene <laughs> or attempted rape scene <laughs> where she comes across some guy at the train yard asking him for directions to Harvard. And then he pulls a knife on her, clearly planning to assault her, and then gets the skin flayed <laughs> from his hands and arms. Yeah, it's it's demented. And also, again, the timeline, again, I'm very confused. Like, she's... I, d- I don't understand. She's in Boston, but the priest lives... Like, the Conways are in Louisiana. No, I think they're in Boston, because during the... Doesn't she say she works at Elysium Lawns? I don't know. But I, I do know that during the opening, the winter, whatever, the, the short story. Yeah. Is that in Boston? Yes, that is in Boston. You see on, okay. like, one of the cops, like, vests that it's oh, Boston oh, right. PD or whatever. the Celtics are going to blow it in the fourth. <laughs> Who's on the Celtics in 2000? Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker. They went to the <laughs> Eastern Conference Final in 2001 as, like, a like young up-and-comer team. And then didn't do much of anything until 08, obviously. Anywho... <laughs> Yes, and then we get to this story, which is the train, the riding the rails story with two implied gay, implied lawyers. <laughs> Explicit lawyers, yes. at least one of them. Um, and the, the whole thing is this guy is dying from an undisclosed illness, obviously. It could be anything. Yes, obviously the fact that it's the 90s. Well, it's it's the it's 2000, but I basically count it as the 90s. Yeah. And that this is like an overtly gay character. You kind of make a natural connection in your mind, which I'm sure even if they intended it to be ambiguous, they were obviously aware of. <laughs> Indeed. The trope of like the dying person refuses to be healed because they've come to terms with dying. I test. <laughs> yeah. Personally, I'm pro-living. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, by the way, I could probably cure you. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could just ride by this, on... <laughs> this gorge instead of throwing myself into it. I was planning to be pushed by my partner <laughs> to my death. That's like But this so... seems like a good alternative. That's so rude of him to like ask his partner to push him off of this weird cliff. But yes, and so he basically the Christopher <laughs> The (laughs) one partner who is not dying, um, he can't do it. And so Tefe... No, Christopher is the one who is dying. Oh, right, right. Michael is the one who isn't dying. And so Michael is unable to do this. He's unable to push Christopher off of this, like, bridge into a giant canyon. And then this is actually... I, I do like this moment where it sort of cuts to... He's looking away, and then he looks up, and Christopher is gone, and Tefe is just standing there. 
and it's left ambiguous as to whether he jumped or Tefe was the one to push him. Yeah, this is cool. I'm I'm prepared to credit Cliff Chang with a lot of selling this, like the impact of this whole scene. Yeah, the shot of her sort of silhouetted in the open boxcar is a good, ha- has some visual punch there. Yeah, like the, the whole sequence, like the first, like the reveal of the gorge is really great. Um, like it's the, the almost full page shot of it. And then, yeah, the silhouetted against the door is really good. It's, it's good stuff. Cliff Chang, good stuff their first uh, collaboration and then there's <laughs> paper girls cheers good stuff can't wait tbd i can't i can't say if it's good or not yet and then yes and then we return to the government story so this is actually a different government story because oh really yeah oh so, i thought it was the same lady no 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 so oh, no. i believe her name is kilroy and agent orange who, whose real name i don't think we know yet work for the department of agriculture Right. Which is why he's like, we're in over our heads. And he says we're supposed to hand off, like, swamp things <laughs> <laughs> to the DDI, which is like a villainous entity introduced in the the, the run between Len Wein and Alan Moore uh, as like a shadowy, like, not government agency, but like government connected agency who love to kill swamp things. Sure. So this person who, uh, Special Agent Romero, she introduces herself as, is a DDI agent who okay. seems to be independently pursuing Tefe, even though the two Department of Agriculture agents did not pass the case off to them. Right. And also, spoilers for this comic. Uh, we, I, I was looking up, because I wasn't... Sh- it's so hard for me to tell what characters I'm supposed to know and what characters <laughs> are being introduced. So I was looking up Agent Orange, because I was like, that sounds like it would be the name of a character. And of course, I realized Larflees, after the fact, baby. yes, that it, it becomes Larflee's name. Um, many years later. Yes, and so I believe his name is is literally like Todd Orange <laughs> or oh, no. something. His name, his name isn't actually Orange. No, it is. No, it's not. They call him Agent Orange because he kills all the plants. But I think his name is also actually something Orange. No, I, can... I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> because then calling him Agent Orange is like not even a joke. Yeah, it's like, not, it's not he, even really a nickname. Why would he it's object true. to be calling, being called Agent Orange if he literally is Agent Orange? Let's see here. Agent Orange. Real name, Todd Orange. <laughs> no, I don't believe that. He's a, okay. He's got like a secret files thing in the second trade that I'm going to pull up and prove you so wrong <laughs> okay i can't wait to get phoned <laughs> todd orange that i'm begging be for true. it where, Anyways, where did you see that he's named on todd the dc orange? wiki of Name course sources <laughs> on the dc wiki um but yes and so this woman the agent agent romero uh from the ddi shows up at michael's house shows a photo of tefe and he, he feigns ignorance and then says, like, well, she wasn't responsible. Don't do anything to her. Um, and then upon ne- finding out that he does know who she is, Agent Romero immediately slits his throat with a yeah. big knife. Bluffs him quite effectively as well, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, uses a slur. Uh-huh. A lot of those going around. <laughs> there really are. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to view... Uh most of the people using them as right or no i don't think we're supposed to like that character but you know still some casual use to be sure yes uh and so yes and so now everyone's on tefe's tail apparently pilot reappears just because for the most part it seems like so he he explains to barnabas later that 
he like fully buys her story and wants to be there so that if she chooses to save humanity, he can help her. And if he cho- she chooses to destroy humanity, he can kill her. Right, yes. And Barnabas is like, uh, same. <laughs> right. Um, and then th- I actually, I do like this issue just mainly because I tend to like, I think the issues where it's a little more slowed down and able to focus on one thing a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of this issue, so we're on issue, what, seven at this point, probably? Uh, it's honestly quite hard to tell from the, <laughs> the trade. Yes, that's, I wanted numbered. to, I wanted to, bring that up as a big problem i have with the trade is how unclear it is what part you're reading i guess just because they wanted it to seem just more graphic novelized in that way but like not having page numbers on the comics is very confusing on the individual issues and things like that it just makes it very hard to track also this trade paperback was not collected until 2014 which yeah. i found quite interesting yeah obviously uh, big time like socket capitalization there yes exactly sort of cashing in on the significantly increased popularity of mind courtierville a name i'm going to continue to use but yeah they certainly like it's it's funny that they waited until 2014 to put these out but like as soon as why the last man became a big thing they were like hey here's a trade collecting like the kind of garbage like two-part batman story he did and like a few random issues of wonder woman <laughs> Right. <laughs> We're going to package this as, like, Batman by Brian K. Vaughn. Right. Um, and then we, we get a, a pretty interesting dream sequence, actually, where it's... I oh, like the a, way this that... This is issue eight, by the way. Okay. I like the way that, like, the logic is very confused in it. How, like, you'll see, like, she sees her own mother who is holding a baby... But the baby isn't Tefe, it's Cheryl's baby that the guy shot... And the baby's name is Georgie, which is the girl from the Arcane show. And then when she tries to hold Georgie, it's actually like a gross swamp monster. And so I, I do I do kind of like like how crazy and like logically disconnected it is. Yes, there's a there's a light uh, swamp thing illusion here as well in that Daphne the plant. I should have mentioned Daphne, the extremely important yes, secondary one of, character. One of the best characters. Daphne is, of course, her tree, her laurel tree, uh, and her like guide through the dream world, and points her from the dreaming known to Sandman readers as the domain of dream to dot 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 <laughs> the plant dreaming. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a sort of like weird red and blue colored existence where she is able to suss out the murderer yes and so then that happens some other tree related happenings take place we get a pilot flashback where he sees the challenger blow up todd ritondaro r-i-t-o-n-d-a-r-o is the legal name of agent orange i'm just going by the data i have ritondaro Described here in the secret files as Kilroy's openly homosexual partner. <laughs> yes, he did. There was like one line. He that made an really... allusion to thinking mounties are sexy. Right. Yes. Um, which I did mentally like reread in like a Paul Lind esque <laughs> place, just because it was so over the top. Um, yes, and so we get this flashback of Pilot and his dad seeing the Challenger blow up. Oh yeah, this this was a cool uh, issue. So there's like a framing story of them like just hanging out at a bar 
getting drunk and having bar talk, and the waitress prompts them with, did you ever see your father cry? And then there's three guest artists who each do the sequence of them telling the story about the time they did or did not see their father cry. Yes, and so we get we get that story from Pilot. We get I believe st- Steve Lieber does the art on that. Cool. <laughs> uh-huh. Go on. We get Barnabas's flashback of him like going to meet his dad, who hates him for some reason and didn't come visit him in the hospital after his disfigurement. And then he... I hope he doesn't have a dark secret. <laughs> and then he owns his dad with a rock. Oh! And, are, and we're meant to believe that he they killed... He killed oh, yeah, the dad? Okay. He killed, he killed his dad. That's why he's like, he uh, passed away uh, a few months <laughs> like after... Right, I see. Yeah, I didn't quite get the... I, I knew it was implied, but I couldn't quite put the pieces together Yeah, there. He's, he's been, like, hinting for several issues at this point that, like, there's more to him than Tefe knows. And and here's where we get the big reveal. Guy Davis, uh, I think probably best known for BPRD, doing the art in that sequence. Sure. Uh, yes, and then the last story is Tefe, who... <laughs> Her, she's with, almost killed a guy. <laughs> she's with Swamp Thing, and then they see a guy like riding <laughs> in a comical boat. Yeah, it's like a fan boat, but powered by like a train a engine. Belching, and it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a it's basically a Mad Max type piece of construction that is like shooting <laughs> off fire in all directions. It has like massive clouds of smoke, um, and then Swamp Thing picks him up and <laughs> then okay, I, I had some issues with this uh sequence because swamp thing picks him up and tells him you aren't deserving of my mercy and seems to be about to kill him but then sees that tefe is also about to kill somebody and is like Ooh! his son yeah like I, I guess it's the child murder aspect of it but i'm like swamp thing you were about to also like fully just murder that guy. <laughs> yeah you're about <laughs> like, to leave this child fatherless i don't, I don't know if you're <laughs> in a position to be like <laughs> my vapors in response to Tefe basically doing exactly what you were doing. Right. But yes, he has a he has a very strong reaction to this. I get, you know, seeing your child try to drown a young boy is probably a lot to take in. You'll believe a plant can cry. <laughs> What's that? Like you'll believe a no, plant can no, cry. No, I know, no, no. Hold on. Don't answer that. <laughs> Um, yes, and so Swamp Thing is clearly very affected by this. He hits Tefe. He does shed a single tear. And then basically realizes, like, I am bad because I'm not a human, and so I can't teach her how to be human, and so therefore I have to leave, and does that, which obviously has impacted Tefe negatively. Um, and then we find out about... <laughs> about the third-party presidential candidate, oh, yeah. Senator Collar Strand. This is, this is, I believe, introducing like a new plot line. So she, she at yes, this point has given up so. on her quest for the Tree of Knowledge for some reason. Is that right? No, I, I think this is part of it. Because I thought they're, they're, she's like, I'm directionless now at some point. Isn't that the whole thing with this issue where she's like, oh, I've got a plan, all right. And right now it involves drinking at this bar. But then in her narration, she's like, I don't have a plan. These I guys are going to figure it out. I thought it was more like she didn't know where to go unless that she had sort of abandoned her quest entirely. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's just this, it's very plotty in such a weird way. Like all of these sort of continuing plot elements of it are like kind of the worst parts of it generally. Like I don't mind. People read this and were like, we need this guy in the lost writer's room. 
Amen, brother. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Lost. <laughs> doesn't quite add up, but I think that I think he worked on the seasons of Lost people like. He worked on season four to like three, seven, three to five, three to five. Okay, I looked at this up, but yes, yeah, so it's like like the characterization stuff and like usually the self-contained stories. Well, they have a somewhat mixed hit rate for me, but usually that stuff I find at least interesting. Yeah, and then it gets bogged down a lot by this very plotty stuff. And yes, and so basically where we end up by the end of these 10 issues is that they're going to Washington, D.C. because this third-party presidential candidate <laughs> who <laughs> Pilot supports has withdrawn from the race because... To focus on his family. Yes, because daughter... Actually. <laughs> because, because comments of his by his daughter have surfaced of like talking about how bad her dad is. And they're just like, and I guess they're like, uh, we also Tefe, think our dads suck. Yes, exactly. Tefe sees her as a kindred spirit and it's like, we need to rescue this girl or go find out what's going on. And so, yes. And so they start driving to DC and then we get a bit of an interlude issue, which is the last issue that we are covering today. Yeah, this, this issue is like pure fat that could be trimmed from the run as a whole, I feel. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just, it's more exposition, which is... But like exposition of... There's like one thing in this that we don't already know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. So uh, they're in Newark, New Jersey, uh-huh. and then Constantine shows up because he has been charged by Tefe's parents to find out if she really is alive or not, and bring her home if she is. Yes. And then we find out that actually Constantine killed, like um, Mary Conway was going to remission and he killed her anyways because that's just like how it had to work for this yeah. sort of... So the, we never like really detailed the ritual, but the, the it required someone to die, which Sw- uh, Constantine told Swamp Thing and Abby up front and they were originally like no and he's like it's chill i've already found someone who's dying naturally who she can replace so they were like all right but we learned that in fact it wasn't enough for her to just die she had to be killed (laughs) by smothering her with a pillow and tefe knows about it because she like woke up in her new body and saw him doing it to herself And then later went back to the where she had been buried and found out that her disease was actually like she had gone into remission and right. she would have been alive if not for Constantine killing her. Yeah, which he appears to genuinely not know, I believe. Yes, he seems a bit a, a little shaken by it. Um, but yes, and so so the big it, it is an interesting issue insofar as I think the main sort of idea that is put across in this issue is sort of the difference between caring for like every individual person versus caring about like the greater good as constantine puts he says your old man worried about protecting the entire planet not every bloody blade of grass in the world and so he's sort of like that's sort of where tefe's at where she cares about protecting plants and animals and humans but at the same time like sort of her her unwillingness to it's a, it's a very classic superhero thing where focusing on the individual rather than the greater good and it's sort of costing the world as a whole yeah it's it's a little it's a little unusual because like i she she experiences the green in a way such that every blade of grass is like very individualized for her whereas like in like the classic swamp thing stories 
that's not really like the case like like grass blade wouldn't have an identity so much as like a, a lawn would have like more of a kind of sort of like sense of identity or or a knoll as it were so it's interesting that like i i don't know if it really jives to say that like oh swamp thing didn't care about every blade of grass because like maybe if he experienced the like plant life the way that she did he would have but this is like kind of new this is this is like add add-ons basically it's new it's a new way of conceptualizing the plant life that is like being freshly presented in this room right um and yes and so that's pretty much where we end up at the end of this there's some sort of environmentalist talk which i feel like will be built up later but yes and so that's sort of where we're at at the end of this so it's it's it is it's only 20 issues in total right yeah so we have 10 left and (laughs) it seems like there's a lot to do in those 10 issues because we have grass ninja we have or grass samurai i guess we should say we have the ddi we have the department of agriculture todd orange (laughs) todd mutando mutando something like that uh, and then we have this like newly introduced plot about the senator's daughter or the, the presidential candidate's daughter, and we have the like hanging thread of the tree of knowledge. Yes, and also you know the more general Tefe as the right. instrument of war against humanity by right. the Green. Will which... I destroy all human life? <laughs> Question two. <laughs> destroy all oh, human right. life. Destroy... <laughs> destroy all human life too. Will I plants versus zombies? Hey, there you go. She she sort of is a human embodiment of plants versus zombies. <laughs> um. So yes. Yeah. So what what are, what are your general impressions of this? I feel like we're judging by how slightly uh, exhausted I feel like we both feel at this point. Um. Oh, it's also worth pointing out that this is the 2000 election we're talking about. So oh, yeah. Bush yeah. versus Gore versus Strand. <laughs> And isn't there also, isn't there a Stephen King thing where there's like a politician named Strand speaking uh, of under the freaking dome? The stand? Is that what you're thinking of? <laughs> yeah, the strand. Um, <laughs> anyways, but yes. So I, there are definitely some interesting ideas here. I, I, I think honestly, if I were to criticize it, I think I would criticize the writing first and foremost. Yeah, I agree. Which is weird to say, like when we're talking about someone who. Obviously, you know, it's, it's a person who is having growing pains, clearly. <laughs> a person who at the beginning of this episode I described as one of the most important creators <laughs> of the 21st century. <laughs> yes. But I think I think he's just getting a little bit bogged down by sort of the weight of the thing. Like, it seems like, I don't know, maybe this is the story he wanted to tell. But it does seem like there's a lot of back backseat lore that sort of rears its head and yeah you have to sort of muddle through to get to the more interesting things yeah i think there's a lot of things at play in that he's a new writer on a like struggling book so he wants to like keep his book afloat and not like blow his shot because like who knows if he'll he'll get another writing gig if his book gets canceled he has taken it's like his first as his first like ongoing project He's taken on a title that is like a legacy title in some ways that is known as like one of the signature runs of one of the the best writers ever. So so there's like kind of that element in the back of his head. 
he's young and still finding his voice. And I think also is sort of like, well, I'm writing for the mature line, so I'm not going to like pull my punches. But also he's like 23 or like 24. Wow. Wait, really? Yes. He's young. He's like a young writer. Uh, and it and it shows like <laughs> yes for sure i think that's my biggest problem with it is that it feels like it's trying to reach a little too hard for the this is for mature audiences so it should have adult things in it mm-hmm. and sometimes from, from like someone who is like not that far into his adult life <laughs> and and like you know maybe still working with some of the things that appeal to him more as a teenager well she's 18 famously but I, I i do think it reads like the kind of mature content that is actually marketed more towards teenagers than it is towards people who can actually quote unquote legally consume it right it feels like uh <laughs> this is probably the most apt comparison but the first thing it made me think of to hear you describe it like that is the video game manhunt uh <laughs> sure. like, or even grand theft auto it's the same way i think yeah, sure. It's like a rated, like rated M game, where it's like this one's not for kids, but like it is kind of for sixteen year olds. Yeah, it's for like <laughs> that, like people who haven't quite figured out what the whole deal is yet. And it's just like, wouldn't it be funny if there was a guy who was gay? <laughs> I don't think any of the gay characters are supposed to be funny. No, I'm thinking of Grand Theft Auto uh, for the Ballad of Gay Tony specifically. <laughs> uh, I, I see. Also, Agent Orange is a little bit. Isn't it funny that this guy's gay? It's true. Um, but, like, Christopher and Michael are uh, a relatively sensitive portrayal, I'd say. They've got a little bit more of the Philadelphia energy. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Philadelphia energy is a good way to put it. But, yeah, I, I think, yeah, if, if I picked this up now as, like, oh, this, like, new creator working on, like, you know, a character I'm interested in, I'm excited to check it out, and then read this, I wouldn't feel compelled to pick up the second trade. I wouldn't feel compelled to pick up the next project i saw this guy's name on so it's funny yeah it's funny to go back and look at this and think about like where he ends up with why in like two years time uh i think we'll see like a dramatic improvement but yeah it's funny some of the hallmarks of what i kind of think about of his writing from this era as far as kind of like quippy kind of like reference based and like dropping factoids like constantly is not present really here but you can sort of start to see the first like snippets of it where it's like i researched something for this and now like every (laughs) interesting thing i found out i'm going to share with you where like the mistletoe little story feels like it's got a bit of that in it i'm trying there's another part that i read that i was like He's, he's going to be going ham on this kind of thing later. Yeah, there, there's the part where, like, they're talking about the mistletoe. It's like, well, the god king, whoever, did use yeah. this to kill this. It's just exactly. like, what? Yeah. Okay. That, that kind of, like, the first line of Why the Last Man is, did you know Elvis had a twin brother? And <laughs> this is going to be the thing that kicks off, like, this little section of dialogue. Or see, he, he goes to that well a lot later on. So it's funny to see, like, the first... To the, to the point that when Saga was announced, I was like, how is this guy going to write a story that's not set on Earth? <laughs> <laughs> what what trivia is he going to be sharing through the dialogue? <laughs> but but yeah, it's funny to see those first like initial things crop up here. And, and even though like I don't think you really have a, a sense here of how good he will be, the trajectory is kind of there. Yeah, like I, I think it just, generally speaking, it reads a lot as the first effort from uh, someone who's still sort of 
finding their voice and is suffering a little bit from the era that they're writing in and what's probably either being expected of them or that they feel is being expected of them. But, uh, but yes, I think we've said most of what we need to say here. Yes. Um, so do you, I, I, I love to say it, but do you, <laughs> do you have any kind of, uh, kind of contextual treats for us? I do. I have some sales talk and some awards talk. Oh, okay. 2001, of course, the uh, awards season for these issues. Nothing nothing doing for the writing side of things or the interior art side of things in either of the big two awards. Promethea and Top Ten and Alan Moore generally are cleaning up. He's in his, like, America's Best Comics uh, era, which, do you know anything about that? No. It's kind of a funny story because, so... It's like Gaffanakis on the phone. Uh-huh. He made his uh, his name kind of as like one of the the all time greats at DC. Had a huge falling out there over like the Watchmen contract and other issues. Jim Lee, as part of like the Image uh, Revolution, had launched his studio Wildstorm, and he got Alan Moore to come on uh, to do his own like line called America's Best Comics. So he like hired artists and planned out a bunch of series, really did some of the best work of his career. Uh, but like just before they got started, Jim Lee sold the studio to DC (laughs) (laughs) after Moore had been like, I'll never work with DC again. I'm off to (laughs) do, do my best work at Wildstorm. Uh, yeah. And then DC bought Wildstorm and he was like, I would leave, except I already promised like five artists steady gigs. So (laughs) I'm going to do it, but I'm mad. (laughs) But yeah, so Promethea, top 10, great book. Uh, Tom Strong, great book. Lots lots of good stuff coming out of there. Best writer. Did I already say it was Alan Moore? I've heard of Ghost Writer, but best writer. Uh, I don't (laughs) care for that. Best writer is indeed Alan Moore at the Eisners. No nominations whatsoever, um, except for, I believe, Phil Hale, the nomination for Best Cover Artist. Indeed he does, for Swamp Thing, Vertigo Secret Files, and Flinch number 11, uh, but loses out to Brian Boland, who is doing some Batman covers and the Invisibles. So, no love at the Eisners, no love whatsoever at the Harveys, not so much as a nomination. Alan Moore, also the best writer over there. Um, so yeah, no no love for for him. Sales-wise, number one debuts at uh, number 88 in the sales, 25,000 issues, which is, uh, you know, not great, but would sustain a, a run if he was able to keep it at that level, certainly. So number 11, uh, it's cut about in half to 12,736 uh, issues sold. So it's that's, that's good for 146th on the month. By contrast, the top seller that month is X-Men, as it also is in the <laughs> month of number one coming out, and it's cracking 100,000 still pretty consistently. So if anything, I'm kind of surprised that it's able to sustain for another 10 issues at these numbers, because 12,000 is well below what I would expect for a cancellation threshold. I couldn't say. Um, do, you, do you know if this was particularly, like, obviously it wasn't super commercially noticed, but was it critically regarded in any way like do you do you have any sense of how people either perceived at the time or even perceived it today yeah i think it was sort of like uh seen as like an uneven run but 
shows some promise. The book obviously was canceled with number 20, which is why it didn't go on. But uh, the like the editor, Heidi McDonald, basically was like, listen, you've got like a strong voice for characters. Maybe you should consider like doing your own characters, which obviously is the route that he ultimately really like made his name. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it really was like critically acclaimed or like a fan favorite particularly or anything, but it gave him it gave him enough of a foothold in the industry to be able to do things that were better suited to his skill set perhaps. Right. Well, now that we uh now that we have that sense, we will be reviewing more swamp things yes. next week, issues 11 through 20, which I, you know, I'm I'm I am interested in seeing where it goes. Like there I feel like generally we probably err on the middling side of it, but there there is interesting stuff here for sure. There is, yeah. Uh, I just can't believe the amount of stuff that is to be covered in those 10 issues. Yeah, that will be interesting. I imagine the answer will be a lot of things get dropped entirely. <laughs> or like uh, one one storyline really cleans up the whole, the whole kit caboodle. I believe right. that most of the remainder of the run is one like long story arc number 11 kicks off a story called red harvest that runs until it looks like number 17 well so <laughs> that there, should, uh, there you have it that yeah so i guess we're gonna we're gonna hit some interesting content soon uh but for now it will have to wait one week i hope you're all excited for that episode <laughs> until then uh don't forget to rate review and subscribe but until next time, for David and myself, let's say it together, to be continued.